Good morning. We are uh, in the beginning of our study through the book of Zechariah. So turn in your Bibles, the second last book of the Old Testament. Now, when I went home last week, I was both encouraged about the message, and then I was told that it is not the book of Zechariah, it is the book of Zechariah. Um, so I now have the pressure on me to say Zechariah, not Zechariah. So I'm going to try to say it as close to both of them. So certain people are never quite sure. Did he, did he say Zechariah or Zechariah? I'm not sure. So we'll see how it goes. We'll see what happens when I get home, if I got it right. We looked at some of the uh, historical background last week for this book, what was going on behind it. Uh, I want to begin today with a little bit of literary background, uh, because the first six chapters of this book contain a series of eight visions that have some apocalyptic features to them. And so we understand how these forms of literature are used in Scripture. Uh, apocalyptic literature are futuristic writings that are filled with strange symbolism, uh, most famously in the New Testament book of Revelation, and there's also quite a bit of it in Ezekiel and Daniel. Uh, what are the characteristics of this literature when the Bible uses it? Uh, Preeminently, it is showing that God is sovereign in the swirling flow of human events, uh, despite the fact that there often is upheaval in what is happening around us. Uh, scripture wants us to see that God is sovereign through it. Uh, in apocalyptic literature, there's uh, a very sharp divide between uh, those who embrace sinful behavior and those who embrace righteous behavior. It is rather pessimistic of human activity without the gracious, gracious intervention of God. And it points to the certainty of God's judgment and of his salvation. The purpose of apocalyptic language in the scripture is to encourage God's people as they live through the turmoil and uncertainty and oppression that believers often face. That's why the Bible ends with apocalyptic literature in Revelation, not so that people end with a book that's confusing to them, but they see how life will end. What is God doing? How does all of this turn out? We're given that clear assurance in ways that grab our minds and sear it into our attention. And so we will see some themes of this type of literature in the visions in Zechariah. And so what about visions? Uh, apocalyptic writings are generally in the form of visions. And God speaks to his people in the scripture, uh, sometimes by dreams, we see numbers of times, sometimes as we have in Zechariah, by visions. Now, dreams, we understand what dreams are like. 
Uh, in biblical dreams, uh, people are usually given particular direction from God about what they're going to face immediately ahead of them. And so in the New Testament, we have Joseph through a dream. He is informed that Mary is pregnant through the act of the Holy Spirit. And then he is given a dream to flee to Egypt when Herod is trying to kill all of the uh, newborn children around Bethlehem. And the wise men were warned in a dream by the Lord uh, of what Herod was trying to do and to go back home a different way. So that's how dreams are generally used in Scripture. Visions are different from dreams. In visions, people observe events that are yet to come, and these are very vivid and lifelike. Uh, perhaps a, a good way to think about them is uh, to think about Dickens' Christmas Carol with Ebenezer Scrooge. He is taken through events that are, are not actually happening, but it, it seems as though they're real. He's in the midst of what seems completely real, but it's not really there. That's what visions are like. Uh, many years ago, there was a young man uh, in our church who was a new believer, and as we were talking, he was speaking of a vision God had given him. And as I just kept pressing a little bit more, well, what was this vision? What actually happened? Finally, he just admitted that he had an, an impression in his mind that he thought he had from God. Uh, a vision is something much more dramatic and very real. In fact, both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter refer to events that took place in their life, and they weren't sure whether it was a vision or actually happening, because they had experienced both, and they recognized that a vision was hard to distinguish from real life. It is that vivid. And in terms of the visions in Zechariah, going back to Ebenezer Scrooge, uh, similar to that where there was the, the spirits who led Ebenezer Scrooge through uh, those scenes that he experienced of past, present, and future, there is always an angel who is leading Zechariah through his visions. Uh, we'll see the phrase, the angel who talked to me. And he is with Zechariah in these visions, and he explains them to some degree to the prophet. So with that background, let's look at the first of these visions, Zechariah chapter 1, verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. We know that this date was February 15th, 519 B.C. So in just a couple weeks, we will celebrate the 2640th anniversary of this vision. Maybe we can have a party or something. 
The prophet says, I saw in the night, behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judea against which you have been angry these 70 years. And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For a while I was angry, but a little they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion, and again choose Jerusalem. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us, that you have given your word this timeless voice, always appropriate, always faithful. So we ask that you would help us to receive your word with clarity with impact, that it would shape us, that we would have the appropriate understanding and response to all that you have to say to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This vision begins with horsemen among the myrtle trees. Verse 10 tells us, that they were a patrol sent out by the Lord. And people who were alive at this time, hearing about this vision, would have been very familiar with Persia's extensive system of mounted riders. Uh, Persia was a vast empire, and riders were continually going throughout the empire, bringing information back and forth as couriers, but also reporting on what is taking place. So this patrol would convey to them that the Lord is aware of all that is happening in the world. The, the Lord has his patrols. Now, in truth, God doesn't need any patrol to go out and search and tell him what is going on. God is in constant, eternal awareness of everything. But this vision is 
creating a picture for people to understand truths about God. And he sees everything that is going on. There is no mystery or surprise to God about their events. We read that the patrol, when Zechariah sees them, is in a glen, which is a ravine. And there amidst the myrtle trees, which were somewhat low trees, very leafy, that were green year-round. So we have the sense that this patrol is hidden. They are down in a ravine, they're in the midst of these leafy, lush trees, so that other people don't see them, don't know that they're there. God is letting his people know there, there's always more than what you see. You may not be aware of my patrols, of my watching, of my activity. But God is always active. And his people are meant to be encouraged with that knowledge. There's always more going on than what we see. So as the Israelites who have returned from 70 years of captivity back to their homeland, but still under Persian rule, they come back to a temple in a city that have been pulled down and destroyed. They're living amidst ruin. The people around them are oppressing them, don't want them to rebuild, are doing everything they can to keep them from rebuilding. And in the midst of this feeling their, their failure, their weakness, what do we do? This vision is letting them know God sees. God is fully aware. The horseman's report is in verse 11, where they say, all the earth remains at rest. Now, we hear that, we immediately think, oh, they have a good report, because that's what we all want, to be at rest. And Darius, who ruled the Persian Empire, had brought stability after a number of, of years of conflict. And so the Persian Empire at this time is starting to grow in power and in prosperity. But it's a false rest. Because down in verse 15, we read that the Lord is exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease, that think they're at rest. Their rest comes from their pursuit by their own wisdom, their own desires of what they want. They're getting prosperity. Life is turning out the way they planned according to their goals. But what's missing here is any recognition of the reality of God. That he is always present. That he has a word, a law that he has placed. We are under his authority. We are accountable to him. And we will all stand before him. And any level of prosperity that ignores God will be a false and empty prosperity. 
And so as the Israelites are aware of their own struggle as they come back to the land and they see what seems to be prospering people around them in the midst of this vision, the Lord is always also letting them know the rest of people who do not follow God is a short-lived and shallow rest. And for God's people who don't feel that rest, when they live in a world where God is ignored, where he is opposed, and so what we value is opposed, and what we believe and stand for is opposed, and we're not at rest, the world seems at often to be at rest, uh, the Lord is letting us know, again, there's, there's more than what you see. The rest of the world is not a lasting rest. And as we will see, the rest God gives to his people is an eternal rest. Though the people of God may be opposed as the people of God were at this time, God's people have someone who is taking their side. For the patrol reports to a man who is shown to be more than a man. The the vision begins rather innocently. Uh, Behold, there's, there's a man riding a horse. And then we see it's, it's part of a patrol. And this man is standing among the myrtle trees. We're told twice. But then we see in verse 11 that this man standing among the myrtle trees is, is actually the angel of the Lord. Verse 11, and they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth. So the one who is patrolling and the one whom the patrol is reporting back to is not just a man. He's not even just an angel. He is the angel of the Lord. And this angel of the Lord sees the condition of God's people and he is pleading their case. Listen again with what he has to say after he hears his report in verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem? He is crying out on behalf of God's people. Haven't you, haven't you thought that or said that at times? How long, Lord, will this last? How long will this burden, this trouble, this illness, this sorrow? And the angel of the Lord who is over those who are watching the horror, he is bringing that plea to the Lord of hosts. We saw last week the Lord Almighty, the Lord greater than all armies and kingdoms. So who is this angel of the Lord? The answer is, he is the pre-incarnate Christ, the eternal Son of God, the, the second person of the triune Godhead. The angel of the Lord is referred to a number of times in the Old Testament, and his identity is not always clear. But there are other times where his identity is undeniable. And perhaps the best example of this is in Exodus chapter 3, 
when Moses in the wilderness is confronted by a bit a bush on fire that's never consumed and a voice speaks to him from this burning bush and in Exodus chapter 3 verse 2 it identifies this as the angel of the Lord it says the angel of the Lord appeared to him and then down in verse 6 the angel of the Lord says I am the God of your father Abraham. There is no question who he is. He is the Lord God. He is the second person of the Godhead, the Son. And ever since creation, the angel of the Lord, the second person of the Godhead, has been the one sent by the Father to care for his people, to intervene. We see it in many ways. Uh, in Exodus chapter 3 again, the angel of the Lord says to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cry. I know their suffering. I've come down to deliver them. It's the same message that he is giving here in Zechariah chapter 1. Another case would be in Judges chapter 6, where the people were under the power of the Midianites who would come each year and, and steal their crops and were keeping them in poverty. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said, I will use you to deliver the people. And then in Psalm 34, verse 7, we're told that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. When we're in our deepest need, when we feel most vulnerable, who is it that comes who is sent, who is watching, who is burdened for us. It is the Son of God himself. And this angel of the Lord, God the Son, is not only sent to us, he intercedes for us. Hear again his voice, hear the passion in it, hear his plea for mercy. O oh, Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy? He is burdened for the people he loves, those whom he's watching. And he longs for the plan of God to be fulfilled. He longs for the intercession, for justice to come, for deliverance to come. He is pleading himself. How deeply, how deeply does he feel this? Well, we know because he would eventually be born into humanity in Bethlehem. God becoming man, taking human flesh, taking human nature, and then humbling himself further and 
making himself the sacrifice, the substitute on our behalf, paying the entirety of the sin and guilt for everyone who would trust in him. That is how deeply he cares for the burdens of his people. And this is the one who cries cries out to the Father. Do not wait longer. Deliver the people. And I ask you, believer, do you think that the Father could ever ignore his Son? Could it be possible that the Father would push him off or belittle him or ignore him? No, we, we are sure, certainly the Father hears his Son. Not only hears him, but his response will not be the least he can do. It, it will not be just something to, to keep the Son quiet. He will respond with the entirety of his heart For the Son loves the Father and carries out His work. And the Father loves the Son and wants to exalt Him and has promised to lift Him up that all who look upon Him and trust would be saved. For the Father wants His Son's work of sacrifice to be greatly honored and to be used to reach many. And when you're weary of heart and you're wondering, does God see? Does he care? Is he moved? How long will it last? We're meant to remember passages like this where we are assured of the sight of God, of his listening ear, and above all, of his heart to care for his people. People of God, justice will come. Full justice. What we see around us, it can disturb us. Justice comes. Deliverance is sure, and the one who leads it all, including who leads the answer to your plea, it's Jesus himself. Because the Lord has taken your burden upon his own heart. Look at verse 13. How does the Lord of hosts respond to his son, the angel of the Lord? The Lord answered, gracious and comforting words. The Lord will not get out of his timing. And while we wait for time to be fulfilled, he speaks gracious and comforting words. 
In verse 14, he, he tells the prophet to cry out with what he has to say to him. Let the people hear. Let it be loudly heard by all of the people. He cries out first that God is jealous for them. Verse 14, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. It is not the human jealousy of manipulation. It is the pure jealousy of one who loves and seeks to protect. One who wants the love we have for each other to remain pure. That it is not compromised by our idolatry or by ignoring him. And neither is he loose about his commitment, but he jealously with great passion is watching us and holding us. Has love failed you? Those who should have loved you and cared for you, have they failed you? Those that you've loved and poured your heart out to, have, have they failed you? And you're, you're hurt and you feel the loss of love that you should have. Know that the love of God is not an idea or just a doctrine. It is a reality expressed most beautifully in God becoming man and dying for you. The love of God, which we speak of so glibly, is a passionate love, a zealous, deeply held love. Not only is he jealous for his people, he says, cry out. The Lord is angry. He says, exceedingly angry with the nations at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. The people of God had turned to idolatry year after year, generation after generation. God had warned them by many prophets, and finally he, he promised he would have to discipline them, which involved them being cast out of the land, being carried out by the Babylonians. The Lord meant that to awaken the people and bring them in humility to repent and turn toward him. But those who took them out abused them and treated them harshly. And so the Lord says, I am exceedingly angry for those who misuse you. So do you feel justice has failed? That no one has carried your case? They don't care about how you've been treated, what's been done, it hasn't been seen, you haven't been believed, or you feel there's nothing you can do, justice will be upheld by God. Full, perfect justice will be upheld by God. And he has something else to say, that he wants the prophet to cry out to the people. Verse 16, he has returned. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. Do you remember last week, whereas this message is, is introduced, 
the Lord speaks to the prophet and says, tell the people, return, tell them to return to me and I will return to them. And we saw the conclusion in verse six, they did repent to the Lord. And so now the Lord says, here, I have returned. I am here in my merciful presence. God is always here. But now the the door has been thrown wide open for God's gracious presence to be in their midst because they have turned their hearts to him. They have no longer put their back toward the Lord, but they are embracing his ways. And so now the Lord can freely fulfill his highest desire for them. We read this in verse 16. What does he do in his return with mercy? He says two things. My my house shall be built, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched over Jerusalem. Now his house is referring to the temple, which he had asked them to build up. The temple in the Old Testament represented the presence of God amidst his people. And we read in the New Testament that the temple was a picture of the church. We see many references of it. Uh, One of them is 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 5. Speaking to believers, he says, you are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. Another time he says, we are like pillars in the temple, that together we are the temple of God. And when the Lord says, my house shall be built, he is speaking to the Israelites then. The temple will be rebuilt, but he is also echoing out that my people will be established and built. And then he goes further and he says, the measuring line stretched out and A measuring line was used then by surveyors when they're laying out a city, setting where buildings will go. And this word picture was already used in Ezekiel to describe, again, uh, this same point that God would again reestablish his people and raise up the city. And surveyors again would be laying out where homes and buildings are. This again is a picture of the church. But now it is referring to the eternal perfecting of the church. Where we read in Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, when the prophet or the apostle John is given a vision of the finality of of time. He says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God. And then he changes the word picture. He says, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The bride is the church. The New Jerusalem is a picture of the church, one that is made with costly and beautiful stones, one that is this amazing city. It is a picture, again, of God's people perfected and made beautiful. God's people whom the scripture says, when they see Jesus, they will be like Jesus. 
And all that God has begun to do will be brought to its full completion. And that stream of truth is is running through this passage, speaking to the immediacy of God's people then, continuing to be shouted out and declared to God's people today. He sees, he will fulfill, and his fulfillment for you is at the measure of what God can do. The highest desires of his heart for us. God sees more than our immediate trouble. He also sees his highest desire for us and what he will do through our immediate troubles to fulfill that. And so the Lord then says to close out this vision to Zechariah, cry out again, verse 17, Cry out again, says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. They're words of promise. He wants us to know he has chosen us. He came to us. He will comfort us. He'll always be present He'll forever prosper us. He will make us complete in his kingdom. So God's people, take this vision to heart. Recognize who it is on watch. Who sees everything happening. Remember what the Lord of hosts has said, for no one will stop him. Who will hold back the arm of God? And live it out. Let us live as people who truly believe God sees, who believe God cares, who believe God has promised, who believe God will certainly fulfill all his promise beyond what we can imagine. Who believe there's always more going on than what we see. Let us live in a way where God can see we believe it. Where the world can see we trust him. And where we hold to it so dearly that we lift up one another with our trust in him, it may be a struggling trust at times, but the one who sees is the one who holds us, and he simply will not lose you. He will not. It's impossible. It cannot happen. He will sustain you. He will hold you. So let us live as people who believe that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, how we praise you that you are the faithful God. How we praise you, you're the God who not only sees, you're the God who has come to us, who has sent help. You're the God who saves. Not through giving us things to do, you have saved us through 
your son, Jesus Christ, who has done everything. So we ask that you would help us to respond with praise, with obedience. And Lord, bring conviction to our hearts what that means right now for us. Guide us. What does it mean to trust you, to rest in you, to obey you? And draw to yourself any who have not trusted in you, who have not turned to you, let them see how good is this Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.